Well, Mike mentioned last week that there are some good things that have come of this disease that has so swept away our confidence in the world, and I have to agree with him. I get to preach sitting down, which is perhaps a good thing for this passage, because the facets of God's character revealed in this passage of scripture are breathtaking. If I attempted to preach on these things standing up, there's a good chance I would end up sitting down anyway or perhaps falling on my face. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 23, which is the passage for my sermon today. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, we come before you today in humility and in desperation for your word and for who you are. God, I pray that you would teach us, that we would understand this passage, and that you would give us wisdom through the spirit of truth, just as Paul prayed. And God, I pray that we would apply this to our lives, that we would not walk away from this time the same as we are now, but that you would bless us with renewed life and with greater fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Well, there are eight verses in this chunk of scripture that I'm preaching from, and only two sentences. Paul's writing is a little bit hard to understand sometimes. And of those two sentences, one of them starts with and, so you could call it one sentence, but we're going to break this down a little bit into chunks to help us understand what's going on here. And so the first chunk is verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I'm going to stop right there. Paul says, because he has heard of the faith. Now, why does he say heard and not seen or known or something like that? Because Paul ministered in Ephesus for more than two years. There are two possibilities to explain what's going on here. First is that time has elapsed since when Paul was in Ephesus till when he was writing this letter. And so the church there has grown, and he's only heard of some of the converts rather than knowing them personally. There's another possible explanation that stems from the fact that there are some early manuscripts of this letter that leave out the phrase, who are in Ephesus, in the first verse of the first chapter. So um, most of our translations read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
there are some early manuscripts that leave that who are in Ephesus part out, and it says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So should we be worried about that? There, there are two different uh, versions of this letter. I don't think so. It's entirely possible that Paul wrote one copy of this letter to go directly to the Ephesian church, and that having put the time and the work in to making this wonderful, profound letter, that he also addressed another one that would be distributed as a circular letter among all of the different uh, churches. And it's possible that he has not been to all of those churches, likely that he hasn't been to all of those churches that would receive this letter. And so he would only have heard of their faith rather than seeing it directly. So two different possibilities for why he says heard, which seems a little bit weird at first when he's talking to a church that he had ministered in for so long. But the important thing here is that he rejoices over the salvation of every saint because he knows what those people have been saved from. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we've been saved from. And Paul knows it, and he rejoices that anybody could be saved from that. And notice who he is thanking. He is thanking God, because God is the author of salvation. We don't thank the Christians for having made a good choice to follow God. And we definitely don't praise the Christians for having made that choice. We thank and we praise God who has made that salvation possible. God who chose each Christian before the foundation of the world. We thanks, we thank God, and we begin with thanksgiving before anything else in our prayers because we know the wondrous works that God has done to save us from our sins. Verses 17 through 19 are the second chunk of this passage to break down. And that is a prayer that Paul offers for the Christians. And this is, could be a model prayer for how we can pray for our brothers and sisters. I mean, I would love to have you all pray this for me because there's so much here, so much blessing to be had through this. Verses 17 through 19, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, there are two errors to avoid in the interpretation of this passage. First is that this is not a prayer about the baptism of the Spirit. I don't think I'll ever forget this uh, idea that some people have, that there are two different types of Christians, both true Christians, but one who has been baptized in the Spirit and the other who has not. When Kirsty and I lived in Ecuador, we went to visit the evangelical church that was in our village. There was a Catholic church 
and one evangelical church, and we gave them both a try because we were desperate to spend time with other believers while we were there. When we visited the evangelical church, the pastor, the normal pastor, wasn't there. There was one of the other men of the church who gave the message, but the pastor found out that we had come and visited, and it's pretty easy to find the two white people in town, so he looked us up and came by our house one evening. And as we were talking, it became more and more clear to me that the spirit that was in him was not the same as was in me. Now, you all know me. I'm not really a wild and crazy guy, but I kicked that man out of our house because the more and more he talked, the more distorted he made the gospel to the point that he was questioning both my wife's faith and mine because we hadn't done things that he said were important for the faith. We hadn't done things. And we know that faith is in what Christ Jesus has done for us. But he believed that there are two different classes of Christians, two different flavors, I guess, two different levels. One who has come to a saving faith but has not yet received the baptism of the Spirit, and the other who has received that baptism. But we know that the Bible teaches that it is the Spirit that applies salvation to our lives, that applies the work of Christ to us, that awakens our soul and calls us to him. And so there are no Christians that don't have the Spirit. It happens at the moment of sanctification, at the moment of conversion. When a person comes to Christ, they receive the Spirit of God within them. So this passage is not talking about some separate baptism of the Spirit. Paul is already talking to Christians, to brothers and sisters who he has thanked God for. And so he's not saying that they would receive the Spirit in the sense of baptism of the Spirit, because they already have the Spirit. The other error to avoid stems from this word revelation. He prays that God would give us the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, this is not about the Spirit granting new normative revelation to every Christian. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture. He inspired the apostles to write the New Testament. He inspired the prophets to write the Old Testament. And it is the same Spirit who enlightens us, who sheds more light on the light of Scripture that he has already inspired. And that shedding of light by the Spirit to us helps us to understand it. And in so doing, he illumines our hearts as well. So this is not revelation in the sense of new Scripture that we would write down and say bears the same authority as what has been revealed to the apostles and the prophets but rather it is revelation of what has already been enlightened by the Spirit, what has been inspired by the Spirit to the apostles and the prophets is enlightened to us. And in so doing, we gain in knowledge of him. So the focus here, the central prayer that Paul has for the church is not for a baptism of the Spirit. It's not for special new revelation, but rather it is for wisdom. The focus is on wisdom. 
and it's wisdom of the knowledge of the Father of glory. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To be wise, we must understand who God is. Now, I've preached before on Isaiah chapter 6, and if you haven't read that passage in a while, go and read it, and read it out loud, because the message screams off the page of the holiness of God and how great he is. And by contrast, how weak and frail we are. And if we understand those things, we are left with a healthy fear of God. Not that he would snatch our souls out of our body to destroy them, although he has the power to do that. Not that he would crush our bodies. Not that he would turn his face away from us. But the fear that we have is a fear of reverence because he is holy and we are not. A healthy fear that is born out of the love of God and a trust in his love for us. Paul prays also that we would have knowledge about the hope to which God has called us. And that phrase, the hope that he has called you, is repeated in chapter 4 of this book, in which Paul is emphasizing the unity of the body of believers. So part of the hope that we have is that people from all backgrounds are united in the faith. I mean, God is not the God just of the United States. He's not the God just of Israel. He's not just the God of the year 30 AD. No, God is the God of all that he has made. All of the universe is governed and controlled and for the purpose of glorifying God. And we have the hope to be united with our brothers and sisters together in Christ. Where right now, all that we have is strife and disagreement, not only between ourselves and other believers or the people of our family, but between nations and countries, between generations. Yes, there is some good, but there is so much difficulty and disunity in our world today. But we have the hope to look forward to God's unification of all of his people together in one place to stand together in awe and worship of our God. That is an amazing promise that Paul wants us to understand that our hope is tied to the unity of the church. Paul also prays that we would have knowledge about what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I want you to stop and look carefully at your Bible because I didn't use the wrong preposition there. Glorious inheritance in the saints. I mean, we're so used to thinking about the inheritance that God will give to us. And the Bible does talk a lot about that. But here the focus is on the people of God, the people that God has chosen as his inheritance for himself. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a record of him passing on the authority, passing on the inspiration and the power of God to Joshua as his replacement to lead Israel. 
And he gives one last speech to Israel before he goes up the mountain to die. And these are some of his words, some of his song. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So when we look at here this passage that Paul wants us to understand, what is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? What is God's inheritance? The Old Testament teaches clearly that it is Jacob. And there's some controversy in the interpretation of this passage about whether we are rightly to understand the church to be included in that or excluded. Whether God's inheritance is the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, or whether it includes Gentile believers. Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 through 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. He includes us. Paul includes us there and says, If you are in Christ, then you are in Israel. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Paul is talking to Gentiles here who were separated from Christ, and that is synonymous with alienated from Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Unified to Christ means unified to true Israel. So we need to find a balance as we're thinking about this concept of the way that redemptive history works through different people groups. Because there are those on one side of the interpretation of how that works who are worried about the idea of the church replacing Israel. And they backlash against that and say that those who love the church too much or who read into promises like this that we're reading, the church being included, they say that those people have replaced Israel with the church. They call it replacement theology. But I don't know of anybody who has ever said that the church has replaced Israel. And so I think that's backlash from those people against a concern that nobody is saying. On the other hand, sometimes when you hear those people talk, it sounds almost like they don't like the church at all. But I know that they do because they are Christians who are saying these things. So we want to stay way away from these two extremes where these people think that these people believe this thing and these people think that these people believe this thing, but really they're a lot closer together than they think. We've got to find balance as we interpret these passages. And that balance is presented in the life and the ministry of Paul himself. In Romans chapter 9, Paul who we remember is the apostle to the Gentiles, who went through how many beatings, how many shipwrecks, how many arrests, how many rejections and cold and hunger and thirst to bring this gospel to the Gentiles. We can be sure that Paul loved the Gentiles and he loved the church. 
But he says in Romans chapter 9 that he would wish himself accursed if it could bring about the salvation of his kinsmen, of Israel. Paul loved Israel. And he loved the church. And that's the balance that we need to find here. Now, I've gone into depth on this kind of bunny trail off to this side into the idea of the relationship between the church and Israel in redemptive history. Because Paul says that his prayer is that the saints will have knowledge of this specifically. So here's the way it worked. God called for himself a people, Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, if you read the minor prophets, even the major prophets, it's clear that God had his subset of Israel that was true. And that concept of true Israel is elaborated in the New Testament as well. But that true remnant that God preserved continues forward in time. It hasn't been laid to the side and replaced by the church. But rather, that true line has continued and the church has been added into it, grafted into it, one people unified in God, as our hope is. I think it is right to understand that Gentile believers are part of God's treasured inheritance. And that is knowledge that every Christian needs to have about God. That God who created the universe who could make diamonds come forth at a moment's notice. At the words of his mouth, he could have anything, any land, any beautiful waterfalls as his inheritance, any productive farmland, any wonderful mountainscape. But instead of all of that, he has chosen the people of God as his inheritance that he clings to tightly in love. Amazing the love that God has for us. Paul also prays that we would have understanding about the immeasurable power of his greatness, that he worked in bringing Christ from the dead. Let's think about this a little bit. At the moment that Christ died on the cross, all of the sins of the people who would believe in him were applied to him, literally. The sins of the world were on our Savior. And in that moment, Christ Jesus became the greatest concentration of darkness and sin that the world has ever known. Not his own sin sin and your sin and that of all believers was placed on him and he died and if death should have had a hold on anyone ever it was Christ at that moment because of that concentration of sin on him but death could not hold him and God raised him from the dead and if God can conquer the grave and death and Christ who bore the sins of many, how much more so can he conquer the grave for us whose sin has already been paid for?
by Jesus on the cross before we even die. I mean, death has no hope over us, not a chance over us, because we have already been released from the punishment of death for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul ends this passage back where he began. He can't resist coming back to his favorite focus, the place he began this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Christ is above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In chapter 6, if you turn there, verse 12, Ephesians chapter 6, we get some more insight into what Paul is talking about. He says, we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So Paul is saying that Christ has power over evil. And he doesn't say that just in that moment of Christ's life or just in that moment of Christ's death or just at the time that Paul wrote this, that Paul has that power over evil, but he has the power in that age and in the one to come. The kingdom of God is at hand and Christ has the power over evil forever. Christ is also given as a gift to the church, as head over all things to the church God gave him. And I am so thankful that we have that gift because we know what happens to a chicken who loses its head. I mean, it runs around for a while and falls over. And that's what the church would have done as well if Christ had not been given as her head. It would have run around for a while and done some stuff and then fall over. But it has not fallen over. It has persisted and the gates of hell will not stand against the church because Christ is our head. He's in charge of our church. And God has given him as a gift to the church. Thank you, Lord, for that gift. Finally, we see that the church is the fullness of Christ. Verse 23 says, The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, it almost sounds like Christ is incomplete without the church, that he's ahead and we are the body and together we make Christ complete. I don't mean that he needs us, but that he chooses us. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God, who created all things, who fills all things, who is everywhere, is fulfilled by the church because of his choice to do it that way. I do not understand why God would structure his universe to so richly bless his people. I mean, there's really no reason why he should do it that way. But for some reason, God has chosen to focus on us. On us. 
the ones who were dead in trespasses and sins, who followed Satan, the enemy of God. Whether we knew it or not, we followed Satan as our master. But it is God's good pleasure that he raises for himself a people out of death, that he preserved that people for thousands of years, that he provided a savior and so spread that blessing of life to all the earth, to every nation and tongue. So do we grow conceited that we, above the rocks and trees and the puppy dogs, should so receive God's attention and favor? No. No, no, no. For this reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And I do give thanks for you, my brothers and sisters. So go in peace, looking forward to the hope that we have and understanding the riches that you are in the inheritance that God has chosen for himself. Amen.